caught up in all that excitement by our Lord's response. Because our Lord, we said last Lord's Day, being omniscient, knew that that scribe wasn't coming to him with empty hands. And the scribe was still holding on to all of his personal comforts. And Jesus looks right at him and says, listen, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have a nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, look, if you're going to follow me, that's great, but don't think you're going to hold on to all that stuff. You better be willing to let it all go. And we said it seems as though the scribe disappeared between those verses who wasn't willing to do that. And there was another man who came to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first bury my father. And we looked at that and we said in that time of antiquity, that was a, that was a, a saying that, well, let me remain, help my father with his business and let me get my inheritance. I need my money, Lord. Let me get my money. And then I could be useful unto you, Lord. And we said our Lord being omniscient knew that he wasn't willing to, to let that go. And, and we saw our Lord's urgency that now, that today is the day of salvation. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead and you follow me. And in fact, in Luke, it says you preach the kingdom. So we again, Jesus was saying there, let the spiritually, let the spiritual dead, let those people of the world worry about the things of the world. In other words, Jesus said there, the urgency is now, the urgency is today. And then we looked at the third man in Mark who said, Lord, who's also caught up in that excitement. I'll follow you, but let me first go and tell my parents goodbye. And we thought, well, that sounds like a kind of a reasonable request. But Jesus, again, being omniscient, knew. He said, listen, those who put their hand to the plow and look back aren't even fit for the kingdom of heaven. And we saw again the urgency is no delay. Today is the day of salvation. Follow him today. So with all of that being said, and the crowds at this point no doubt would have just about exhausted Jesus. That's where we are in verse 23 there. So in, in fact, Luke tells us about evening time now. So let's look at verse 23. So after the crowds, as I said, exhausted Jesus, he gives the command to his disciples to get in the boat and sail to the other side of the sea. Now we know this is the Sea of Galilee, which basically is a lake. It's only about, from what I read, 13 miles long and seven miles, or wait, eight miles wide. Thank you, Lord. So it's just really a lake. When he enters a ship, his disciples followed him. I want to comment briefly on that ship. I read and I thought this was interesting. Archaeologists discovered a ship that they believed was, could have been very similar to the type of ship in our Lord's day. And they estimated it to be about 26 and a half feet long, seven feet wide, and four feet high. So this was not a very big ship. Boat, exactly. Verse 23 says that his disciples followed him. So we looked at that word disciples last Lord's Day, Mothetaeus. We said this means learners or followers. Now we know from reading in Luke and Mark that up until this point, Jesus had already chosen the 12 disciples and one of them being a traitor, Judas, who is never truly a believer. But so we have that, that group that Jesus chose, but it's not just them who's following Jesus out onto this lake because Mark tells us it was evening time and Jesus said, let us cross over to the other side and other boats were with him and following him. So there was a little crowd that was still caught up in this excitement and was still following Jesus. So see it in your mind. There's our Lord after all of that, after the Sermon on the Mount, after the healing of the leper, the centurion servant, Peter's mother-in-law, after um, speaking to those three men and showing them the high cost 
of discipleship. Now he's exhausted. And it's evening time. They get into the boat. He gets in the boat with, I don't know how many of his original 12 disciples, but some of them, I'm sure, and others were following him as well. He wanted to perhaps escape to the other side of the lake that was less populated. And look at verse 24. And behold, I like that word. It basically means suddenly, unexpectedly, Matthew says, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Now, I looked up that word tempest, seismos, which is, uh, it literally means an earthquake, a literal shaking of the ground. In my limited mind, I thought of like a, like a bowl with water in it as if you would take that bowl and you would shake it. That's what's going on here. But not only that, Luke tells us a windstorm came down to the lake. So you have a shaking of the ground and a windstorm. I don't think this was an ordinary storm. I don't think this was any ordinary storm. Some may believe it was. I don't think it was. With the earth shaking and the wind, I don't think it was. And I would also add that the, most of these disciples, almost half of them were experienced fishermen. I fish. I've been on Lake Erie many times. And, you know, you get comfortable and, and used to that. There's been times on Lake Erie that we've had massive swells. And I'm on those charter boats and just rocking this way and this way. And if you're not used to that, what do you do? You throw up. You're scared to death. But these men were experienced fishermen, and I assume they had seen many a storms up until this point in their life, but this storm scared them. This was no ordinary storm. And remember, this boat was only four feet high on the sides. This boat, unlike my boat, has no automatic bilge system that will pump out the water when the waves come over it. You are the system, and it's evening time, and it's dark. It says that Luke adds that they, the, the boat was filling with water and they were in danger, terribly afraid. Matthew sh- tells us the ship was covered with the waves. Mark says the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. Verse 24 of our opening text tells us, but Jesus was asleep. Mark adds that he was at the stern of the boat, the back of the boat, and he had a pillow and he was asleep. I love that. This shows us the humanity side of Jesus. So we do say he was holy God, fully God, but he was also holy man or fully man. We see that. There's times throughout Scripture we see that he wept. There's times through Scripture we see that he's hungry. Even on the cross he said, I thirst. We see times throughout Scripture uh, he was even angry. Righteous anger, but he was angry. We see the humanity side of our Lord. He was asleep. No doubt he was exhausted. No doubt. We said, Scripture teaches us that he willfully never... Now, please understand this. Though he was holy man, I don't deny. He was holy God. He never ceased to be deity. That's so important to understand that. He never ceased to be deity. He did willingly set aside some of his divine privileges to be obedient to the Father, to his God, even to death death on the cross. So there's our Lord asleep. Now, when I first read that, I remember being uh, younger in my faith. I read that. I said, wait a minute. We talked about this, Jim. There's a contradiction in the Bible. The Bible says that God neither sleeps nor slumbers. And there's God in the flesh, asleep. But obviously, concerning his divinity, he was omniscient. This is concerning his humanity. He was tired. He slept. 
We saw other times through Scripture he sweat great drops like blood in the garden when he prayed, Holy God, Holy Man. The hypostatic union, as we said. So finally, I love this, finally after the disciples, and remember, most of which who were experienced fishermen, listen, I heard a preacher say this and it made me laugh. When you have fishermen going to a carpenter for help during a storm in a boat, you're in trouble. But they, of course, knew. So they finally, after exhausting every effort to save themselves, they finally go to Jesus. They finally wake him up. Now listen to what he says, verse 25. They say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. We are dying. They finally realize the peril of their situation. Perhaps maybe they had not come to the full knowledge of Jesus being God at this point, but they were at least hoping he was. They had seen him time and time again cast out demons. How? By saying the word. They had seen him time and time again healing diseases, sometimes just like the centurion servant, just by speaking the word. They had seen him over and over again do these miracles. But up until this point, they had never seen him do anything towards creation, nor had anyone. But Mark shows us this outlandish claim that some of them had made. Listen to Mark 4.38. Well, let me, before I get there, did you notice that they exhausted every effort to save themselves before they awoken our Lord? Have you ever been there? I thought of myself there. So many times we get ourselves in a mess, whether it's from sin or whatever it may be, and we try to fix it ourselves. We see that even from the beginning with Adam and Eve. What did they do? They sinned. And what did they do? They ran from God and they tried to cover up their nakedness themselves with fig leaves. It ain't going to work. And just the same, every mess I've ever got myself into in life, I can't fix it myself. And it's just so much better to just run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. But listen to this outlandish claim. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's what shocked me. One of them had said that, if not many of them. Do you not care? Jesus showed us over and them, over and over again, how much he cared. He cared enough for the people that he sat down and he began to teach them what the characteristics were of true kingdom citizens. He showed that he cared by elevating God's law back to its proper standard. He showed them that he cared by touching that leper that society would have uh, deemed unclean and would have kept their distance from. And as we read, some of the religious leaders even would have thrown rocks at those lepers to keep him away. He showed that he cared by healing a, a centurion's servant, a young boy who was a slave. Jesus said, I will go heal him. He showed us that he cared by taking the time to heal Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. Again, all of these people, the leper, the slave, and a woman, the religious leaders at that time would have utterly avoided and he showed them again and again that he cared. He showed us that he cared by casting out demons of people who had been possessed, some for many, many years. So all of those miracles they had saw, and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? But again, I think of myself. I point the finger right back at myself. There's been times I have seen, maybe you have seen, 
great miracles of God. What do you mean, Pastor? You know, the greatest miracle of God, I believe we see to this day in our lives, is salvation. Is when He saves a person. When He takes an unholy person and makes them holy and puts them back in an unholy earth and then keeps them holy. We know salvation is a miracle. A supernatural miracle from God. He takes a person who is a God-hater, gives them a heart of flesh that is able to respond, that was willingly to respond to Him. That then all of the things they hate, he makes them a new creature and they begin to love the things they once hated. That is a miracle. We'll see that. We'll see God save someone. We'll see God honor our prayers and answer our prayers to something that we saw no way that that could ever happen. But then a little trial comes our way. What is a trial, Pastor? Anything that disrupts our normal pattern of peace. Now, sometimes those trials are bad. I understand. Sometimes it could be a bad medical report. Sometimes it could be something financial. Sometimes it could be marriage difficulty. And what do we do? All of a sudden, we begin to doubt that he cares. Or we begin to doubt that he's able. When we see over and over again through our lives, throughout Scripture, that God loves us. For whatever reason, that sometimes is a hard concept for me to believe. That God loves me and there's nothing that I can do to make him love me more. Or you. He already loves you. The most you could be loved. There's nothing else we could do to make him love us more. It's not dependent upon us. So we oughtn't, we shouldn't doubt his love. We shouldn't doubt his ability. And we certainly shouldn't say, don't you care? And listen to Jesus' response. He said unto them, why are you fearful, ye of little faith? We said this of every single time we hear our Lord say that, ye of little faith, he was always speaking to the disciples, to the apostles. Those who had much, who much was given, who were in the presence of our Lord for over three years, who heard and saw all of his miracles. He said, why are you fearful, you of little faith? And I believe the disciples even eventually acknowledged they had little faith because they eventually say, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Now think about this. Were they in any danger even though Jesus was asleep? So I think that's part of the rebuke as well. They had Jesus on the boat. Were they in any danger? Did it matter that he was asleep? No. Of course he didn't. It reminded me, I believe, what Martha said when, remember, Lazarus died and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Let me ask you this, church. Did Jesus have to be there physically in order for her brother not to die? Of course not. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. If it would have been God's will for her brother not to die, I assure you, he would not have died. And just the same, even though Jesus was asleep, I assure you, they were not in any danger. God's son was going to die on a tree, not in the ocean, not in a boat. And I thought of that for myself. No matter what comes our way, if we can hold on to those two things, if we have Jesus, who loves us and who is able No matter, I'm not going to take this as the storms of life and preach that message, but I'm going to tell you this, no matter what trial comes your way, if you can reflect on those two things, he loves me and he is able in all things that may come my way, he's working for the good. And even if they would have drowned, let me just add that, even if the disciples would have drowned, would it not have still been a win? What did Christ promise them? Eternity with him. 
paradise with him. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears. And I reflect on that when trials come our way. Even if we lay down this body, Christ has promised us eternal life for those who believe in him. So we certainly can calm those storms. Look at verse 26. Then he arose, Jesus, and rebuked the winds and the sea. Mark even adds that he yelled it out. He yells out, peace be still. In other words, be silent. I believe he yelled it so all the other people in the boat could hear as well. And what amazes me in verse 26, there was a great calm and the winds ceased. Now you and I know if you've spent any time out in the ocean or on any great bodies of water, the winds cause the waves. But even if the winds cease, it takes a while for those waves to dissipate, to gradually cease. And the Bible says immediately, instantaneously, there was a calm. The wind ceased and the waves ceased. When I was going over this with Jade, my little daughter, she said, Daddy, she said, the winds and the waves obey him more than we do. I said, that's right. That's right. Listen, when the creator gives the order to creation, it obeys. When the creator gives the order to creation, it obeys. We've seen that. We already saw that in Genesis. When God speaks, creation obeys. We said he tells the mountain to rise this high, it obeys. He tells the sea to go this far, it obeys. Verse 27, but the men marveled, they were shocked. Mark adds they were filled with even more fear. Remember I titled this unreasonable fear. They were filled with even more fear. They initially were fearful because of the storm, but now they were filled with a great fear. Why? Listen to what they say. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? They're beginning to realize this is no ordinary man in this boat. This is God in the boat. They were afraid as every man is who realizes they're in the presence of deity. What did Isaiah say? When Isaiah had his vision and he realized he was before the Lord, he says, Woe unto me, cursed, cursed am I, said Isaiah, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Peter, when he had realized that he was in the presence of deity, when Jesus had him cast, uh, catch so many fish, his boat began to sink. He falls to his face and he says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Even Paul on the road to Damascus when Jesus knocked him to his back and blinded him and Jesus says, hey, it's me, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute, says, Lord, what will you have me to do? Afraid. I had the thought, what would we do if Jesus literally walked in here today? We would fall like dead men, I would bet. We would fall because he's Lord. He is King I thought to myself, did the disciples not remember Psalm 89, 8 through 9? O Lord, God of hosts, who is strong like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? You rule the raging of the sea. When the waves therefore arise, you still them. Did they not remember Psalm 46, 1 through 3, which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. 
Did they not remember Psalm 107.29, which says, He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. That was prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, would cause the winds and the waves of the sea to hush, and that is exactly what Jesus did when he yelled out, Peace be still, and there was a great calm. I wanted to hope that this would encourage you as, as believers and think about how many times we've seen Jesus' love in our own life, how many times we've seen his power in our own lives by the answer to prayers, by salvation over and over again throughout Scripture. So therefore, when those fears come upon us, they won't be unreasonable. And listen to what Calvin said. I liked it. He said, quote, Thus we see that fear which awakens faith is not in itself faulty. Catch that. Fear which awakens our faith is not in and of itself faulty. In other words, sometimes our natural fallen humanness, when things come our way, our initial response is fear. Perhaps even doubt. But fear and doubt that causes you to run to the Lord. Lord, wake up. I'm paired. Lord, I need you. Fear that, and doubt that causes you to go to the scripture and go to prayer and go to godly men or women for counsel. That in and of itself is not sinful. But Calvin adds, until it goes beyond its bounds. Listen again. We see that fear which awakens faith is not faulty till it goes beyond its bounds. What do I mean? Have you been there? I've been there. That crippling fear. That paralyzing fear. Or perhaps the fear to even get you to say, Lord, don't you even care? That's going beyond its bounds. That's treading that line of sinful, sinfulness. So again, at times, it's, it's natural for us to be fearful. But if it causes us to run to the Lord and cry out to seek Him, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Don't let fear take you beyond its bounds to make you think God is not sovereign, that he's not working all things for the good for those who love him. Now I'll, say, I'll end with this. Just think of this. If, if we have Jesus, which we do as believers, we have his spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. If we have Jesus, is there anything that could come our way that would not be his will? And would not be doing something to us for our good. And I know, there's times I'm like, what are you doing, Lord? There's no way this is for the good. And then a little bit of time goes and you're able to look back and you can say, okay, that was for the good. That was for the good. If we have Jesus and if we can hold on that he loves us and that he is able, then we can certainly endure any trial, storm, whatever that comes our way. Amen? Amen. So we will have a time of prayer as Brother Eric prepares a song of invitation. I want you to think about those things. And again, if you take nothing else from the text or from the sermon today, just it's another proof that Jesus is deity. What Have you ever seen, I've seen this, unfortunately, um, YouTube videos of men, they'll go and they'll try to, uh, a hurricane is coming and, and they'll go out and they'll pray and try to, to thwart it away, to turn it away. This was reserved for the Messiah, for the Christ. You go outside, it's raining, and you pray, Lord, I command the rain to cease. It's probably not going to happen, is it? This was reserved for a deity. This was reserved for the Christ. He is God. So you're welcome to come and pray. You're welcome to pray at your seats.
If you need me or the elders to pray for you, we'd be happy to. Let me pray for you. Lord, again, what a sobering reminder of how much you love us, Lord. And Lord, how powerful you are. All of creation obeys you, Lord. And though man is wicked and fallen, Lord, and and some, many, in fact, rebel today, we know that one day every knee will be bowed and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those who are under the earth. And Lord, if there be anyone here today that you know what they're going through, I pray they receive comfort from this message of how much you love them as, as them being your child by faith and how able you are. And no matter what happens, Lord, we have the victory through you. Holy Spirit, have your way, I pray. It's in Jesus' name I ask all these things. Amen. If you will stand, we're going to sing page 407. Very, goes pretty well with that.